Hey guys, I'm Alex. And I'm Jason. And we just did an awesome interview with a guy named Richard Jacobson last week. Yeah, if you're listening to this, this is actually part two. So you need to do yourselves a huge favor and go back and listen to part one. Otherwise, this episode ain't going to make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, no, in part one, we talked a lot about what does house church look like? Uh, Should we even start a house church? I think Richard Richard Jacobson answered that question for us. Yeah, pretty (laughs) solidly. And uh, he told us a lot about his story. So you you need to listen to that before going on here with part two. Yeah, guys, so stay tuned for this episode, because in this episode, we're going to talk about communal living. Oh, yeah, Alex is so scared of communal living. It makes me think that we're going to be in, like, this big Christian cult, and, like, those are the ones that you always, like, say, hey, what's this that we're drinking? And it's actually, like, cyanide poisoning. We all die. As long as you don't wear the color of those we don't speak of, Alex. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You're so ridiculous. This is not your pastor's podcast. All right, hey guys, we're back with Richard Jacobson, author of Unchurching and also the host of the Unchurching podcast. Along with another cool guy whose name's Gunner. I just got to say, he's a pretty cool co-host for you. Yeah, yeah, Gunner's, Gunner's the one with the better voice. He does have a phenomenal voice. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, like, about your podcast, as you guys have killer intro and outro music, like, every time I hear, like, the outro music when your show's over, I'm I'm like, I almost start to tear up. Like, I'm going to do whatever he said. Like, <laughs> I'm so like, I just, it just like, I don't know what it is about that song. I just have such an emotional response to it. Like, this is the best episode ever. <laughs> you know, I, I spent forever picking out the intro and outro music. I went through every podcast service, you know, that had like uh, intro and outro music available and listen to everything in the world to pick those. So that makes me feel really good. It feels like that time was worth it. <laughs> uh, you did a good job, I gotta say. It's it's great. I love your podcast. It's got great production. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm figuring it out as I go. I'm not really an audio guy, but I, I did ask a lot of questions from friends who do audio. Yeah, so Alex and I are the same way. We're figuring it out as we go, but we haven't asked a lot of questions. We're just going. <laughs> We just keep looking back at our podcast. Man, that audio sucked. Yeah, it could have been <laughs> so much better. We we can't record in that room ever again. I know it. Just We've learning been, through the doing. Yeah. So uh, uh, a topic comes up in your book that I hadn't really given much thought about or even heard about until I read it in your book. And Alex and I are actually kind of divided on it. Uh, and I'm, that, I'm not set on it. I'm just saying it wigs me out a little bit. And I'm willing to, to hear what Richard has to say about it. Yeah, it wigged me out when I first, <laughs> but the more I thought about it, the more I absolutely love the idea. And I want to hear what you say about it too. And that's on communal living. What in the world is communal living? So, <clears throat> okay, like, I, I don't know how long or, or short of an answer you want here, but uh, I'll give you the full thing and then you can edit it down if you want. How about that? <laughs> okay, okay. That sounds good. So, Once upon a time, people lived in community by default. And I'm using that term community very, very specifically. You know, we we use that word a lot of different ways. Like we might talk about the scientific community or the Hollywood community or the African-American community where we're putting people under the same classification. That's not what I'm doing. When I talk about community, 
I'm talking about relationship. I'm talking about people who are living a shared life together. And it's it's interesting to me that, yes, that idea, um, uh, a lot of people are hesitant to that idea because it's a foreign idea, but it's only in recent generations that that has become a foreign concept. Um, you know, prior to the automobile, um, people lived in small towns. People lived in community by default. Um, if you think about... I don't know, TV shows like the Andy Griffith show. And I know that's that's a, a romanticized view of small town community. Um, but I think there's a lot about it that's that's actually, um, you know, very, very factual. And that is if you're living a shared life, um, you know, people who live a shared life, you know, you you run into each other at the corner grocer. Um, you sit next to each other. Um, in church and your kids go to school together and there's only one baseball team. And so you're interacting throughout the week. You're interacting day to day. If you read the descriptions of the early church, that's what they had. People lived in communities. Matter of fact, I would argue that the assignment for the first apostles was to go into existing communities and Christianize them. Now we don't live in community by default anymore. We zone things around commuters. Um, um, our lives are very disconnected. You know, I don't know my neighbor um, who lives right across the street from me because in our morning, in the morning, we get in our separate cars and drive separate directions to go to work. And I drive across town to drop my kids off at work. And, you know, I, I go several miles to go to a church and so on and so on. And there's no corner grocer. You know, I don't run into my neighbor there. You know, I have to go to a shopping district somewhere. And so when we want to create genuine church community where we're living a shared spiritual life, we actually have to start at square one with just creating community to begin with. And there are a lot of different ways to do this. And I don't want to make it sound like it has to be about proximity that you, that you have to move out of your house and move next door to your friends. Uh, That's what Jason wanted me to do. Yeah. I wanted Alex to move next door. (laughs) Well, and, and there is something to be said for that. I actually, um, there was a season where my family um, lived in a duplex and there was a, another family on the other side that we were good friends with. Um, we had some best friends in the house next door and a best friend across the street. And it was an incredible time because we were all believers. We all went to church together and there was a dynamic there um, that's so far beyond just seeing, uh, you know, your your friends once or twice a week at church. You know, it was it was incredible, um, and I think I think I see a, a move in our culture where people are really hungering for that. Not just church community, but just community in general. Um, you're starting to see a lot more conversation popping up about co-housing or intentional community. People moving into the same neighborhood. A um, lot of a lot of people, uh, young people. Um, buying big houses uh, with their friends where everybody rents out a room and then they have a shared space for shared meals and so on. To me, that uh, sounds like a blast. Um, it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I did live in a commune uh, for a while as a kid, um, not for a long time, um, but it definitely left uh, an indelible mark on me uh, because it was a very kind of special experience. And even right now, um, the church community that I'm in, um, a lot of people are very intentional about moving into the same apartment complex or, you know, uh, renting a house with other families. Two of our families just actually went and bought a house together. Um, uh, several people have 
gone and gotten jobs at the same company just so they can be around each other all the time. You know, really, we're just talking about being intentional about living out a shared day to day life with other believers. And again, it doesn't have to be uh, I, I want to be clear about this because I don't want to make it sound like everybody has to move into a commune. I am I am not saying that. But what I am saying is the the more you're willing to make some big moves on the front end, like like if it is negotiable about where you live and you're willing to move next to your friends, um, then it becomes less work during the week to have interaction. If that's not possible or that's not attractive or whatever, if it's not doable for whatever reason, it's not to say that you can't have day-to-day interaction, but you have to be a lot more intentional. You know, you have to actually put things on the calendar and um, you know things have to be scheduled, not just serendipitous, not just in the moment and spontaneous. They have to be, you have to be a lot more proactive about creating community. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. I like, uh, I've mentioned it before on our show that I, I had the opportunity to, to uh, travel to Jordan and spend a week in the Middle East visiting a missionary. And over there, it's it's very tribal and by tribal for those who don't understand it's like your family and all of your extended family all within the same you know half mile and what it allows people to do is uh, for one thing they can let their kids run free because they know that there's always a set of eyes on them within the tribe and there's there's a certain element of safety and provision for one another that I think is completely lost on our American culture. I don't think it exists here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's times, Richard, where I'm like, you know what would be awesome? If I could start a church with all my friends that I grew up with, because we know each other so well, and we know each other's life stories and our little quirks and like our different personalities. But after we all grew up and we went to college and got jobs in different areas, we all moved apart. And now it's like, okay, this person lives 45 minutes away. This other person lives an hour away. This person's in a different state. And I, I hated it to be quite honest. I'm like, I wish we could all live at least in the same city so we can do life together. But I guess our American culture doesn't uh, facilitate that very well. No, our, our American culture is actually, and I'm not saying it's intentional, but our, our American culture is actually very antagonistic toward that way of living. And, you know, not living in community does make us better consumers. You know, instead of walking next door and asking my neighbor for a cup of sugar, I have to hop in the car and drive to Walmart because I don't feel like I have that level of relationship. So it does make us better um, consumers, but it doesn't make us um, happier. You know, there's a there's a landmark uh, book that I reference in my book called Bowling Alone, uh, where the author, I think it was Robert Putnam, um, did this just comprehensive sweeping survey where he looked at community and he looked at the kind of the breakdown of community in our, in our country and our, in our culture. And, you know, I, I won't recount um, everything he says in the book, but he makes a very compelling argument that people who live in genuine community are mentally healthier. Um, they're less depressed. Um, um, they, there's, no business um, if you're a psychologist or a psychotherapist, you know, because people already have people to, to discuss their problems with. Um, the sale of antidepressants is almost non-existent. Um, you know, the suicide rates are much lower. 
I, I think you could argue that we're created to live in community and what we do is we come up with ways to cope with the fact that we're not living in community. We come up with, you know, substitutes for it. But at the end of the day, it's not very satisfying. And a lot of us um, mistake being part of the crowd as as actually being in community because uh, we're so desperate for it. You know, we don't recognize it. That's why, you know, I think a lot of people are, are really uh, fixated on social media because, you know, you get a certain level of interaction with other people. But the thing that we're craving just isn't there to be found. And so we end up being alone together. Yeah, I know, like... Uh... I know at our age, Alex and I, we have a kind of a concept of community, but then I worry about generations younger than us. Are they going to have any concept at all? You know, what's community going to look like for them? It's it's going to look it, a lot different. It's going to look like a Facebook page. Yeah. That's all it's going to be. That's, that's terrifying to think about. So there's there's a lot of good, uh, good, you know, aspects of communal living, but can you think of anyone's, any like negatives to it? Because immediately when i hear communal living and living in communes and stuff cult always the word cult always comes to mind and obviously that's not what you're advocating is that we should all live in this christian cult and that we're the only people that know each other but how can we not do that or a better question what are maybe some of the negatives to communal living if there is any um, yeah, let me let me address those one at a time. Um, first, I'll qualify it and, and say that, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily pressing for people to live in communes or, or embrace co-housing. Um, what I would like to see is just more and more people being intentional about figuring out what community looks like for them. And my I suspect that that's going to involve some level of personal sacrifice to be able to apprehend it. So don't really care about the logistics um, so much as the intentionality. As far as the cult thing is concerned, I do want to, I do want to hit that head on because I get that question so much. That is like the knee jerk reaction. Whenever I start talking about um, not just living in community, but just, you know, anything related to house church, um, the immediate knee jerk reaction is, well, you know, how do you keep, um, from becoming a cult, you know, and how do you keep your doctrine straight? And, you know, how do you keep uh, the weirdos from coming in and taking <laughs> over? You know, they, they ask it a hundred different ways. And what's funny is I never get that question from people who've experienced genuine church community. It's a huge assumption with people in the institutional church and I would even go so far as to say it speaks volumes about that person's church experience um, more than it does mine. And what I mean is I think it's very telling that people in the organized church are so concerned uh, about this this idea of uh, a small house church, egalitarian group becoming cultish. Um. And, and let me let me approach it this way. Actually, let me let me turn the question around. If the senior pastor or priest in your organized church started to kind of drift, if he started to go off the rails, who would really challenge him? And I know we would like to think, oh, you know, there's other leaders and, you know, he's got elders and they hold him accountable, blah, blah, blah. 
But the reality is, in many, many churches, that's lip service. He's the most prominent figure in the church. He is a local Christian celebrity. He is God's anointed, um, you know, touch not the Lord's anointed, (laughs) you know. And unless you really, really had cause to confront him, I don't think anybody would. And so I wonder how far he would have to go and how quickly before some, you know, your average parishioner would have the confidence to challenge him on anything. And, and I think, you know, as long as he paces himself, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and does it over time, he'll end up taking the whole group with him. He'll drag the church with him in a genuine church community. Every single member would have the authority and the confidence to call that man out if he started to drift long before he were he were to venture far afield, you know, long before he could do the amount of damage that a senior pastor or priest can do if he starts to go off the rails. So, you know, and and this whole idea that being in some sort of organizational structure you know, keeps you more accountable and keeps that from happening. That's ludicrous in my mind. There are entire denominations that we consider cults. They call themselves denominations. We call them cults, you know, because you have this entire organization um, that has drifted uh, pretty far in their doctrine. So that structure is obviously not a corrective. You know, I don't, I don't think that's a corrective, but in a true uh, priesthood of all believers, Somebody who had some sort of weird cultish agenda isn't going to last very long because he's going to be continually challenged by the rest of the body. People are going to, you know, one member after another after another is going to say, brother, I'm sorry, that just doesn't line up with the word. And he's not going to listen to a lot of that before he decides to leave, you know, to, to I guess, uh, draw an analogy. Think about our government versus, you know, uh, dictatorial, uh, corrupt governments. And, and I'm not gonna, you know, uh, I'm talking about ideally when, when everything, our government is working correctly, but the way I'm talking about the way it was designed, you know, it was designed with executive, legislative, judicial, the whole idea was we're going to have a government that has checks and balances so that no one person can run away with this thing. And if you want to see real corruption happen, like really quickly, install a monarch, you know, give somebody yeah. absolute power, you know, give them more authority than everybody else. And please don't think I'm, I'm maligning uh, anyone specifically, but that is basically what we do with a senior pastor or priest. We give him so much authority. Um, now, I'm not saying that there aren't very uh, several godly men who hold that office. I'm just speaking to the problem with the office itself. Um, you know, I think the organized church model is more prone to abuse um, than than the type of community that I'm describing in my book, Unchurching. Yeah, you're saying it would be like the same likelihood that you'd have a, a community of people turn into a cult that you would a church itself turn into a cult. Like they both are subject to the same thing. One's not greater than the other or safer than the other. Yeah, at the very least, I I would love to dispel um, this myth that, um, 
you know, a house church or, you know, is, is somehow more prone just because they're not part of some organized church structure. And don't get me wrong. Um, I have seen, uh, you know, informal non-institutional church communities that are very much, uh, a cult in my mind. Um, (laughs) so yes, it happens, but I, but there seems to be this prejudice, uh, from people in the organized church who, as soon as they hear about, you know, house church or non-institutional church communities, like, oh, yeah, I know what's going to happen to them. And they immediately go to visions of David Koresh and Waco. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) One of the things that I think is funny about house churches, and and this is kind of going back a little bit, backtracking a little bit. Every time I think about a house church, it's always the starting block to we're eventually going to get a building and become mega a mega church. So, what advice, Richard, would you give the mega church right now? Because th- I think there's some mega churches that uh, are are doing as good a job as they possibly can under the under the uh, structure that they're under right now. And I don't think that they're completely. I don't know. I don't think they're useless because I I think of like when we have major tragedies. We have uh, in a in a megachurch setting, you have the resources and the and like the manpower even to help out in those seasons. Whereas maybe like the uh, small house church or like a commune maybe doesn't have those resources as readily available. So how can maybe the megachurch get it right, or how can they maybe start moving towards a more biblical idea of what church looks like? You know, I. I definitely don't want to find myself in the business of telling people, especially on an individual basis to do church this way or that way. So this is almost going to sound like a contradiction to everything I've written, but the bottom line is you need to do what the Lord is telling you to do. Yes, I can make a very solid case for why I do not think the organized church model is biblical. I think it is man-made, and I think it comes with a very high spiritual cost. I think it is very less than ideal. With that being said, and I talk about this in the book, you know, the, the kingship, Israel's kingship was their idea. It was not God's idea. Um, they told God, we want a king. And he said, no, you don't. And here's the reasons why. Here's what it's going to cost you. Here's why it's bad. And they went, yeah, we'll take that. So, (laughs) you know, we have uh, some twisted need uh, in us, and it's not from the spirit. I think it's from the flesh uh, of wanting somebody to be over us. And I think that's really what's at the, the center of the whole organized church thing. Now, with that being said, after God instituted the kingship, you know, he took it away from Saul and he hand selected David and installed him as king. And he called him a man after his own heart and he blessed him. And he not only blessed David, he blessed his kingship itself. The thing that God said was a rejection of his own place as king. Um, He blessed David's kingship. And, you know, he said, your throne will endure forever. So, you know, it, it really is about, you know, the, the individual, like, are you doing what God's called you to do? I have organized church pastors who secretly follow 
my blog and read my book and send me Ooh, scandalous yeah yeah <laughs> and they it, well and and this will sound very counterintuitive you know they send me private messages or emails and they're discouraged they're frustrated they say you know i agree with everything you're saying what do i do about it and my knee-jerk reaction is to tell them unless you are certain that god is telling you otherwise you need to stay where you are and i think that answer shocks a lot of them because I've spent so much of my time deconstructing this organized church model. But the reality is God needs his people everywhere. You know, God, God needs his people um, in, in every uh, facet of society. He needs people in politics. He needs people in the organized church. You know, he needs people in these man-made systems that in and of themselves are not godly, but he still needs his people there. So, you know, God, God needs an inside man uh, just about anywhere. Um, so I know that's not directly answering, well, what should the, the, <laughs> the megachurch as a whole do? But I wanted to get that out there first because my answer to, um, you know, the organized church thing, if I'm giving a blanket answer, I, I don't think that thing um, can ever become genuine church community. I think, you know, a, uh, the organized church legally is a corporation and I do not think a church can be both a corporation and a genuine church community. I'm not saying that you don't have aspects of genuine church community within that structure, but to try and turn that thing into a genuine church community, I don't think you can get there from here. Now, I'll qualify that by saying I did have somebody on my podcast recently who would probably disagree with me about that, and I actually invited him onto the show because I knew he would give a different answer. So... I am willing to not only entertain, um, but I would even defer to somebody who would give a different answer. But that, but that is my answer. Yeah, I think uh, one of the first shows that we did, I was kind of bashing on uh, Christian music and Christian radio because I was kind of a part of it through my band, and I was kind of bashing on Caleb. And then we had a guest on who said he was saved while listening to Caleb, and I was like, well, I guess God can use that too. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're kind of saying the same thing with the mega church. We're weak and we're broken people. We just look bigger on the outside, but we're still the same and God can still use it. Yeah. God cares more about people than he does programs. Yes. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's the only business he's in. You know, he's only trying to, you know, touch human hearts and redeem us. And the logical question after that statement would be, well, then why does it, why does it matter? You know, like, why does it even matter why we do church this way or that? And going back to that story about Israel's kingship, the answer is what it costs us. I think at the end of the day, the church outside the four walls is not very impactful when it comes to the larger culture. Um, yeah. I don't think they have a strong witness. I don't see us gaining ground. Um, you know, everything, um, about Christianity has just become politicized. You know, we're actually trying to use worldly systems um, to force everybody into our idea of a Christian morality, which has nothing to do with sharing the good news. It has nothing to do with getting people saved. Um, it's just trying to make them conform. Uh, and if you really want to get down to it, it's trying to make them conform uh, in such a way that we are comfortable um, you know, that, that they're not rubbing against us the wrong way, you know, so that we, um, really 
don't even really have to uh, um, deal with them. Uh. Yeah, it's so this is about maybe a controversial book because of the pastor who wrote it. So when uh, Mark Driscoll wrote, what's that book? Uh, a Call to Resurgence. And he had that whole chapter on the death of Christendom. <laughs> like that spoke huge to me because it was basically saying like, no, we've been, we've been telling people that Jesus is about living a good and moral life. And that's not what the gospel is. So I think we we're kind of seeing that die a little bit. And I'm actually really excited that Christendom is dying (laughs) and we're not, we're not just, we're not just doing this. Like let's make sure everybody goes to church on Sunday and doesn't swear and doesn't drink and doesn't smoke anymore. But it's more of like a net, like we're getting back to the idea like, no, you need to have a complete life change. And that life change has to happen through a belief in the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. Yeah, actually um, it's been interesting because I've, I've read, you know, various blog posts and articles that are talking about the millions of people who are leaving the organized church including millions of believers. You know, they're not rejecting their faith. They're taking their faith with them. And many would say that they are leaving the organized church to preserve their faith. However, those who are staying in the organized church, you know, certain certain leaders especially are labeling this as the great falling away. Um, you know, is this the great falling away that, that was prophesied in Scripture? And um, what's interesting to me is – just that idea that because you say you don't want to go to church services, that this is a great falling away. You know, millions of these people who are leaving are blatantly uh, calling themselves Christian. They're still identifying themselves with Christ, but because they're not going to a church building, they are quote unquote falling away. And it will be interesting to see how our kids and grandkids reflect on this moment because you have people who are a little too close to it who are saying look at all these millions of people who are leaving the church but wouldn't it be exciting if somewhere down the road people are reflecting on this time and saying wow wasn't it cool when the church finally left the building (laughs) (laughs) they may not have a choice i mean if you uh, we, we say this all well we have a pastor who says this that if you look back at church history the American church is an anomaly because it doesn't face a whole lot of persecution and it's going to, at some point it will. And our churches are going to look like house churches, not like the big giant church on the corner. I think as soon as the 501c3 goes away, I think your church is going to crumble quickly, but that's just personal opinion. You're not going to be able to afford the taxes on the buildings and the staff and it's going to get small quick. I think if if churches had to be transparent about their finances, a lot of them would would crumble already. Yeah. Well, let's move on to uh, boom statements from your book, Richard. I'm excited because there was a lot of them in here. I was like, man, I wish there was like a button on my phone that was just a drop mic, and it would just. <laughs> and after I read a section, I would just hit that button, and it and it and just so many good statements. Jason, why don't you read a couple of the boom yeah, statements? Let me let me turn to one here. So. <laughs> One kind of uh, kind of early on in the book, and this one, I, I, I texted a picture of this to Alex because he hadn't read the book yet, and I'm reading through it, and it says, What a contrast we see between the early church and today's churches. In order to help the poor, the first thing the early church did was sell all their extra land and buildings, and the first thing a church does today is buy extra land and buildings. Boom. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> 
I mean, I I read that and I I paused like, and that happens to fall like that. That statement itself happens to fall on its own page in your book, and I think that statement alone deserves its own page. <laughs> like, I'm glad it like it ended up being formatted that way. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I I'm a one man operation, so I had to do the typesetting too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like i feel like it's like man god's really moving in our church we're putting on an addition like cool man what about the soup kitchen down the street you talk to those people maybe they need some money mm-hmm. what's another one jason let me see here oh this one kind of goes back to something we we've already talked about a little bit but it says shame on us if all we have are stories about the miraculous things god did for previous generations of believers yet nothing but lame excuses for why he seems semi-retired today boom (laughs) Boom. (laughs) double boom you know and i'm i might be showing my predisposition that might be my own baggage from growing up in the traditions that i came from but i have a really hard time embracing an idea of a community that talks about this supernatural God who used to do all these supernatural things. And it's just secondhand stories today. You know, Paul described a church meeting where an unbeliever might wander in and the way Paul talked about it, because he was talking about it in the context of everybody prophesying. He said that person should walk in and have the secrets of his heart laid bare And then he would drop to his knees exclaiming, surely God is among you. Um, My whole life changed when I was four years old when I encountered the presence of the living God, when I encountered the person of God. And, you know, that's happened uh, at other times in my life. And those are the most pivotal pivotal, uh, moments in, in, in my personal story. And... I don't think it's wrong for unbelievers to call us on the fact that we tell these tremendous stories and don't back them up with anything. You know, Jesus said, if you don't believe me, at least believe the miracles. Um, I think it robs us of a lot of our witness to go around telling these extraordinary stories, but not being able to demonstrate any power today. And I think God wants to change that. Now, that could be my own prejudice, but that's where I stand on that. What's another one, Jason? All right. Oh, I know we did talk about this one. This one says, so what happens to a church when most of its members get spiritually fed without having the opportunity to exercise their true calling? Rather than shepherding sheep, this sounds more like raising veal. And then you have this awesome illustration. And underneath of it, you say, much like the veal calf, many of today's churchgoers spend their entire spiritual lives inside of church boxes. Can we get another boom? Yeah. <laughs> boom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, the picture sold it for me, too. Like, here's this little calf. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm the calf. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking about the, the illustration in the yeah, book? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so bad. I know there's there's a bunch of them that I can read. I know I, usually when I go through a book, I'll do that. It's something that really intrigues me. I write down the page number in the front cover, and the front cover of your book is full of page numbers. So it's pretty much at some point I'm going to reread this whole entire book. Yeah, here's here, I know this is going to sound self-promoting, but it was actually I, – I don't think I realized how much I still needed validation 
um, until I published the book and I saw how it was received. Because you have to remember, I've been working on this book for 15 years. What? Wow. Yeah. That's a long time to labor at something in total obscurity, not knowing whether it's going to resonate with anybody. And yes, I had tested the waters with the videos and that gave me enough confidence that I knew I needed to finish the book. So I, you know, I didn't think it was going to fall completely flat, but I didn't expect the response that it got. You know, I posted a little, because I make these little animations, I post a little animated video just kind of explaining what the book was about on Facebook. And you know, if you get two or three shares, not not likes, but but actual shares, you know, you've, you've done something great. Um, a lot of brands, you know, might get 12 shares when they post something. I posted this little video and it's not like I have a huge following, but it got 200 shares. Wow. You know, it got thousands and thousands of views. And when the book came out, my email, uh, my inbox was flooded with people taking pictures of pages they'd highlighted. They were t- manually because I didn't have the Kindle version out when it first came out. I have Kindle now. But so people were having to type quotes by hand and they were typing long quotes from the book and sharing them over and over. Like like I could watch some readers progress through the book because they would post quote after quote after quote after quote as they were progressing through the book. And again, I know that this really sounds like I'm I'm patting myself on the back, but it's not that. It was it was actually incredibly humbling because I don't know if this book will ever have a large following, but the people who care about it care about it a lot. And that has meant the world to me. Just to put something kind of out there into the universe and see it resonate with people and get emails from people at two or three in the morning saying, I just finished your book and it's helped me um, get through everything I've struggled with about church for the past 20 years. And I get a lot of emails like that. A lot. That's going to be completely encouraging. (laughs) Oh my God. It's, it's absolutely overwhelming. Does that make you want to write another one? Yeah, but I have no idea what it would be about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you spend 15 years working and going, am I ever going? Like, and I'm being real vulnerable here, but the year before the book came out, um, I was actually driving down the road. I was driving to work and I was crying, just openly weeping, driving to work in my car. And I was praying, Lord, don't let me die without ever finishing this book. You know, it became such such a labor of love to get it finished and get it out into the world. And I was getting really discouraged. Like, is it ever really going to happen? So to see people respond to it the way that they have, uh, it, well, it made it worth it. Yeah. I mean, here you go through this, this kind of a spiritual journey where you have to question, you know, how the way we do church and you have to make this huge life decision, whether you're going to remain a pastor or, I mean, you're switching careers at this point and, you know, 15 years later, you get to write a book and it's helpful to other people. That's, that's awesome. It is. It really is. So can people pick up your book on all the normal websites, Amazon and, uh, yeah, where, where can we get your, where can people find your book? Where can they, uh, find your podcast? Um, right now the book is exclusive to Amazon, but it is available in print and Kindle, um, you can find the podcast either by going to my website, um, unchurching.com, 
um, going to Libsyn, unchurching.libsyn.com. It's available on iTunes if you just search Unchurching. Um, it's the Unchurching podcast. Um, and, of course, if you go to unchurching.com, you'll find all my connections to various social media because I'm on Facebook and Twitter and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's even a Facebook group you can join if you want to really nerd out with me. <laughs> I, I think I am friends with you on Facebook. That's how this whole thing got started. I was really surprised that I added you as a friend and you accepted my friend request. Yeah. Like, like uh, I know this this sounds really lame, but here, like, uh, you know, I'll get kind of sappy with you here as we're <laughs> wrapping up our interview. But here, I reach out to you randomly on Facebook. You accept the friend request. I, I message you a couple times. You're a really awesome guy. Uh, here, you're an author of a book. You're in Nashville, and you're accessible. And here, you've we've been on the phone for an hour and 45 minutes here, which is just incredible to me and you're willing to open up and and share some very personal stuff about your life and what you've been through all in effort to help us and help others i just want to say thank you so much and i appreciate your time and appreciate your willingness to sit with two kind of weird dudes (laughs) (laughs) at the other end for as long as you have and being patient with us and everything through some of our silly questions (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm, it's a privilege to do it, guys. I, I mean, I appreciate you having me on the show. And I mean, it, it's kind of a special season because, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if the book will ever reach a large audience. So I may never have uh, a big problem being accessible. Um, but I also know how difficult it is to scale um, accessibility. You know, when I left the organized church, Um, or left the church where I was on staff, I actually went and spent a little time in a, in a bigger church, in a mega church. Um, and it's kind of calling back to what I said earlier about mega churches attracting people who just want to blend into the background. That's actually what I wanted to do. I wanted to just go and sit on the back pew in a really big church and a really big crowd and not be noticed. Well, sure enough, the pastor of that church found out that I was a former pastor and you know, that was a concern for him. And he, um, said, Hey man, I I would love it if we could get together and, you know, have coffee and just kind of talk. I said, sure. And he said, here's my, here's my private number. Here's my private email. You know, uh, I'm, I'm really swamped next week, but get back to me the week after that and we'll set something up. So sure enough, I called him and he said, Hey man, um, things aren't working out this week. Call me in a few more weeks, called him a few more weeks oh man, I I didn't realize we've got this event coming up. We've got these things, you know, I'm really going to make this happen. I really want to make it happen, but call me in a few more weeks. And it became this, this ongoing thing. And we finally reached a point where I just said, Hey, look, I'm available whenever you are. I totally get it. Just reach out to me whenever you have a clearing on your schedule. And I was fine with it, but it became awkward for him whenever we would pass each other um, <laughs> at, you know, between services. And the thing is, I, t- you know, I told my wife, I said, here's what breaks my heart about it. I know that he sincerely wanted to get together. I know he did. Yeah. And I know he feels guilty that he's not following through on it. And he probably thinks that I think he's a, the, he's a jerk. But if there's anybody in this entire congregation that knows what he's dealing with, I do. Like I'm the one person that would actually extend him grace and say, it's okay. So, you know, I, 
I kind of feel for people who are caught up in the machine and can't do the things that they wanted to do. You know, like, like it's not always the things that are most important to get our attention. Sometimes it's the things that are most urgent. And so I actually, I hope it came across well in these interviews, but I actually have a lot of compassion for organized church pastors. Like they're, there's not an us them mentality with me at all about it. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, just one thing before. I think based on this interview, I'm going to start up a house church. <laughs> I'm going to start. Just said it. not to do that. I know. I know. I'm going to start a house church, and then we're going to open up an upwards football program. Oh my gosh! <laughs> this is what I deal with, and and people can tithe remotely through Patreon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, Richard, thank you so much for sitting down with us and talking some things through. I, I, I've gained a lot of wisdom and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It's a privilege. Yeah. So, Richard, before we go, do you have like a benediction for us? I feel like that's how we should end this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will reiterate uh, the, the thing that I said earlier because I, I, I know people are, are at different points along this spectrum. And I would say, don't define yourself um, by what you're not um, and find people who are on this positive trajectory, pursuing the type of community that God's put in your heart to do. I think that's the, the most fruitful thing that you can do. Oh, that wasn't very good. We'll just loop something from earlier in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's getting late up here. I'm getting tired. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so for much. guys. Yeah, appreciate it. Alright, take care. Much love. Right, bye. bye, buddy. Bye. <laughs> man, Alex, what do you think about this whole interview? That was such a great interview. I uh, mean, I feel like I need to sell all my belongings and give to the poor and then move into your basement so we can start our commune. <laughs> But no, I'm so appreciative that Richard gave us so much of his time. The actual interview, if we didn't split it up, was almost two hours long. And I'm just super appreciative of just his time. And like we laughed so hard. And it was just, it was real awesome just to sit down with a fellow believer. And when we, I remember listening to the interview as he's talking, I'm like, that's what Jason and I are going through right now. Yeah. So I'm really thankful that there's a guy that's already gone out ahead of us and we can kind of maybe uh, glean some wisdom from him. And that's definitely what a lot of his words were to me was just some, some solid wisdom. Yeah. And hopefully if you're, if you're going through ministry yourself, maybe you find yourself in the same exact boat. I think there's a lot of guys like us who just, who feel called by God to do something but they don't know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. And that's what our whole entire show is about. We're just sharing what we learn along the way in this whole ministry experience, I guess. You know, you know what I'm really excited about though, Jason? I'm really excited next week we're going to come out oh, with an yeah. episode where we get to share our ghost stories. Yeah. So, I mean, we hit you with a lot of hard topics over the last couple episodes, but the next episode is totally all about the haunted house I grew up in. <laughs> And we're going to have my dad on the show, and he's going to verify everything that I say. Plus, my dad's got some wicked awesome ghost stories. Well, not only that, do we have uh, Kyle Wendell coming on and talking about how the church that we record the podcast at is actually haunted? Yeah, uh, we will see if we can get him to come on. I wanted so bad to have Motor City Ghost Hunters come <laughs> on and uh, 
do a ghost hunt of the building and for some reason our pastor like shut it down like it was demonic or something um, i don't know uh maybe well maybe ghosts are actually masquerading as uh they're actually demons so you never know maybe they're angels pointing people to jesus uh doubt it uh anyway guys <laughs> make sure you go and like us on facebook follow us on twitter and instagram uh also if you are just kind of like technologically challenged maybe you should go on www.notyourpastorspodcast.com and you can find all the links for our shows for our blogs and for all of our videos right there on that website so please go check it out and if you listen to us on itunes please leave us a review we want to hear your guys's opinions on how we can make the show better so please go and do that. yeah pretty much alex and i just love hearing about ourselves over and over and over again because it's all about us. That's not what it's about. Yeah. Well, I just want you, like, I get so excited when I see, like, the plays go up on our show. Like, it's like a, it's like a drug. <laughs> or if I get, like, likes on our Instagram photos. By the way, my Not A Surf photos got more likes than your uh, Zayo photos. I'm just saying people like. Because people don't know what they actually like, Jason. You know, people they, people like indie people rock are, over metal people are every sheep. day of the week. People are sheep, and they just want to listen to four chords and bounce around. Well, like you know idiot. what? I want to lead those sheep, Alex, someday, maybe. Not really. I'm not a very good people person. <laughs> then why do you want to be a pastor? I don't know. I don't know why is God doing this to me. I don't know. It's my cross to bear, I guess. Oh, my gosh. Again, you've taken the Bible completely out of its context. I don't but... think that I have. Uh... Anyway, guys, we love you so much. Thank you guys for listening. Hope Thank you, guys you to got Richard us. for coming on. Yeah, man. He was awesome. So thank you guys for listening. We love you. And remember, always keep your stick on the ice. <laughs> no, I thought of a new one. You know what we should say? We should say. I love how you pushed my arm. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 I no. Pushed you, I pushed your arm away. So like, I want, okay, so say, well, quit playing with your pop filter. That's going to get annoying. I want you to say, say Jesus saves. <laughs> Just say it. Remember guys, Jesus saves. But Dylan Larkin scores on the rebound. Oh! oh. Oh!